This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In the 16th and 17th centuries, indeed, for all the centuries of church history prior to the Reformation, there was no question among Christian people whether God has revealed his moral law in nature and in the consciences of all humans. There were debates about how that law should be described and how that law should be related to Scripture. The Reformation, as it returned to Scripture to test everything, reformed our understanding of natural law, but the basic idea remained. In the modern period, however, there has been considerable skepticism and even hostility toward the idea of natural law. Enter Westminster Seminary, California's Dr. David Vendrunen, Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. He has just published a new volume, Divine Covenants and Moral Order, A Biblical Theology of Natural Law. And it's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Well, you have a new volume Divine Covenants and Moral Order, a Biblical Theology of Natural Law. This is an interesting conjunction of two important topics or ways of working uh, in which you've spent your career. On the one hand, biblical theology, and we'll find out what you mean by that and what that is in a moment, and then your interest in law, natural law, civil justice, and Scripture and how these things intersect. How did this book come about and give us a sense of not only how you wrote it, but for whom? Well, I guess the broader story here is I spent a number of years earlier trying to make my way through some of the Reformed history of thinking about natural law. And for listeners who are not quite sure of what natural law refers to, it's basically getting at this idea that God reveals himself in nature, and we call that natural revelation. And part of God's natural revelation is the revelation of his law, of his moral will. It's a law that God impresses upon all people, that all people, by having hearts and consciences, are aware of. Paul says in Romans 1 that they actually know this law, and they know what God requires. So this has been a long-standing topic in theology and philosophy and ethics. So I wrote a pretty large volume in which I explored the history of Reformed thinking about natural law. Reformed theologians, for most of our history, have believed in natural law. You find it discussed in—it's all over the place, actually, in the Westminster Standards, but you also find references to it in the Canons of Dort and the Belgic Confession, referred to by various terms like light of nature and things like that. So after finishing that historical study on Reformed thinking about natural law, I really wanted to turn to try to develop a positive, constructive, theological account of natural law, and that's really what this volume is trying to do. As I considered the Reformed history that I had been studying, it really occurred to me that there, even though so many Reformed theologians talk about this subject, and it's all over the place in our older Reformed literature, that it didn't seem to me that there had really been a good focused effort to be thinking through how do we think about natural law in a distinctively Reformed way, and that given the fact that we as Reformed Christians have some distinctive 
views about anthropology, about man, about sin, about salvation, about eschatology, about the biblical covenants. What implications might that have for the way we think about natural law? Because natural law historically actually raises a lot of those theological questions. And I think for the most part, Reformed theologians kind of took over natural law from older medieval theologians and basically affirmed what they had said about natural law, not in every respect, but I don't think there'd been uh, enough effort to really think through how do we reform the doctrine of natural law, or should we reform the doctrine of natural law in a way that resembles the way we reformed many other doctrines. And so that was the bigger purpose of this book. It's a pretty large book. It's more of an academic or scholarly book, although I did try to write it in a clear way that, that I hope a lot of thoughtful readers will be able to profit from and not just those who are professors. Something happened to natural law, as you say. It was widely taught in the early church. It was taught in the medieval church, and it certainly was taught by the 16th and 17th century Reformed and other Protestants. But in our period, we seem to be somewhat unfamiliar with those categories. To the degree that Reformed folk are familiar with them, there may be some suspicion of them or hostility to the notion of natural law. So what happened to natural law in the Reformed community from the 17th century to the 20th century? It's a very difficult question. I think a complicated question in a lot of ways, and I don't think you can really understand it without understanding some of the broader events in the broader Western culture. In part, there was the European Enlightenment, which is a very complicated thing in and of itself. But there were a lot of natural law theorists among the Enlightenment folks. And certainly among some of them, natural law had a sort of rationalist turn And it became, in many ways, a way of asserting human autonomy over against a more biblical kind of ethics as an attempt to, you know, how do we make our way sort of out of these religious wars that we've had, and how do we find some sort of neutral, rational way to organize our societies? And so I think for many people, natural law became more associated with that line of thought. There's also the whole Roman Catholic tradition, which obviously continues on through this period, and Rome continued to talk a lot about natural law. So I think for a lot of Reformed people, especially as we get to the 20th century, natural law tends to imply, at worst, some sort of radical enlightenment, rational autonomy, and at best, maybe some kind of Roman Catholic idea, but an idea that doesn't take sin seriously enough, that has too much confidence in human rationality, doesn't take Scripture seriously enough. And if you describe natural law in those kinds of ways, it's not surprising that Reformed people would find the idea questionable. So part of our present situation as well is the whole kind of postmodern environment in which there supposedly is no objective moral truth out there. We kind of all create our own stories. And in that kind of environment, natural law seems like a pretty outrageous idea, because natural law actually is about objective truth that God reveals that is made known in the very structure of the universe God has ordered. So I think there are a lot of these cultural forces that are affecting the way Reformed people hear terms like like natural law. And I think if we're thinking about a lot of the 20th century, when Reformed people are really trying to fight the assertions of human autonomy, when we're trying to defend the idea that 
God is ruler of this whole world and that there's no part of this universe that's somehow outside of his governorship. I think it's not surprising that natural law is not the kind of term that would come to mind as a useful tool for that. Although it is interesting now that in a postmodern context, the whole idea of defending an objectively knowable moral reality in this world is actually very natural law friendly, historically speaking. And so I think there may be certain cultural shifts that may indicate to us that maybe natural law is not such a bad idea after all. And maybe there were some good reasons why our older Reformed theologians, why our confessional standards talk a lot about natural law. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And your argument here in this book is that it's taught also in Scripture, and you spend 10 chapters working through the history of creation and redemption, and so this is a kind of a biblical theology of natural law, which raises a couple of questions, at least. The first of which is, and this is probably the second time we've used this term, when we say biblical theology, or when you say that word, what do you mean by that term? As I explain early in the book, there's a sense in which I want to use the term generally in referring to a theology that is thoroughly biblical. There is a bit of a more technical meaning that is also conveyed in this book, in that a lot of times when we talk about different kinds of theology, exegetical theology or systematic theology or historical theology or biblical theology, what we mean by biblical theology is basically trying to understand the movement of God's dealings with his people through history say, in systematic theology, when we look at a particular doctrine, say, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, well, what we're doing is we're trying to take all the different parts of Scripture that speak about the Lord's Supper and trying to put it together in kind of a coherent package. Biblical theology doesn't really work in quite that same way. That doesn't mean it's more biblical than systematic theology should be, but what it does is it tries to trace how themes develop in Scripture and how God reveals more of himself and more of the truth as history goes along, and how God's people relate to God in similar and in different ways as history proceeds. And so what I'm doing in this book is trying to trace, as God's people move through history, not only God's people, but actually the world at large, as we see history move from one covenant relationship to another, from creation to the fall, to the institution of God's common grace in the covenant with no to the establishment of Old Testament Israel, to the coming of Christ. What does Scripture say about natural law at those different places in redemptive history, and what relationship do God's people and the world at large have to natural law at those different stages in history? Why is it important for Christians generally to learn to read Scripture redemptive historically, just briefly? Well, God, I suppose, could have given to us Scripture in a lot of different forms. He could have given a scripture that looked kind of like Burkhoff's systematic theology, where he just he have doctrines and he kind of explained the doctrines. But it's just so interesting that God actually gave us—he gave us a, a history book, essentially. Now, it's not all history that is there. Obviously, you find wisdom literature and you find epistles and prophecies that aren't, strictly speaking, history. But even those books are set within a larger historical narrative. And Christianity is a historical religion. It's not just some absolute abstract truths floating out there that we need to somehow comprehend somehow. But God has acted in history and will act in history, and 
creation and fall and the making of covenants and the sending of his son the first time and his death and resurrection and ascension and his second coming, all of these happen in history. And what happens in history actually accomplishes something. The fact that God spoke and the world was created, that actually accomplished something. The fact that Adam disobeyed God's original command, that had profound consequences. The fact that God made promises to his people, that meant something. That actually determined the way history was going to proceed. And of course, the work of Christ had profound consequences. And if you take out those historical events, well, actually, you don't have the Christian faith anymore. And so it's important for us to recognize that Scripture comes to us relating that history. And God didn't give us Scripture all at once. He gave it to us at a lot of different times in various places, as the beginning of Hebrews says. And so we need to be careful that we actually read Scripture in a way that reflects that fact. The listener might be surprised to hear you say that Scripture teaches natural law, because it's possible, we'll say, for the listener to see people describing the Reformed appropriation of natural law as radical or other adjectives are used. And it has been said to me, for example, that, well, what about canons of Dort? You mentioned that earlier. Canons of Dort, Heads of Doctrine 3 and 4, Section 4 says, There remain, however, in man since the fall the glimmerings of natural light, whereby he retains some knowledge of God and natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue for good outward behavior. But so far as this light of nature from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and a true conversion, that he is incapable of using it aright, even in things natural and civil. By no means, further, this light, such as it is in man, in various ways, renders wholly polluted, and hinders in unrighteousness, which by doing he becomes inexcusable before God. How do you understand this language from the canons of Dort and natural law? Clearly there's an endorsement, but there are cautions as well. I think it's a great statement. I actually had a few people in print who accused me of teaching something opposite to that, which is kind of stunning to me because it seems like that's exactly what I try to teach. I think it's a great statement that there is this light of nature, there is this continual revelation of God's law, and we actually do see people continuing to have some knowledge of it and displaying certain virtues that it communicates. At the same time, it's very clear from Scripture and just from our common life in this world that sinful human beings are constantly twisting that as well. And it seems to me that this statement from the Canons of Dort really does a nice job of capturing both God's common grace and preserving that light of nature and preserving some justice and order in this world, and at the same time expressing the fact that even for civil things, let alone the things of salvation, which are not even revealed in nature, but even those civil things that are revealed in nature, that human beings are constantly messing that up or constantly perverting justice, constantly seeking our own way instead of God's. So I think that's a really nice balanced statement, and I really hope that my book reflects that perspective on the topic. Do you think it's possible that some people assume that when the canons say not capable of using it aright, it means to say we shouldn't use it at all? I think that must be how people take it if they think what I'm saying is contrary to that. We can't use it aright. What that means is that we can't use it aright perfectly. I mean, if it meant we can't use it aright at all, it would actually contradict what was said earlier in that statement. 
no, we can't use it perfectly. In fact, we're constantly twisting it to our own purposes. But along with that, again, I think this is clear in Scripture. We can talk about some of the things that I bring out in my book, but just in our common experience, we recognize that there are unbelievers who accomplish a lot of outwardly civil good things in this world who aren't doing it because they know Scripture. They're doing it by the light of nature. And that's, in some ways, the great mystery of this world, is how God is able to bring so many good things out of this world from unbelievers who are constantly set also upon rebelling against him. One more question about our confessional standards, and then we'll go on. It is interesting, isn't it, that the Westminster Standards, and particularly the Westminster Confession, Chapter 7, teaches a very clear doctrine of a covenant of works between God and Adam as the representative of all humanity before the fall, and then restates that doctrine in Chapter 19 in the context of its explication or confession of the role of the law in the life of the believer. Help us connect those two things. Yeah, this is something that's actually a really important theme in chapter one of my book. It would make sense that it's in chapter one. And you can find this in some of our earlier Reformed theologians, although I think it's something that I think is worth more exploring. And that is essentially that the responsibility that Adam had before the fall in the covenant of works, it wasn't merely just his obedience in regard to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was actually required to obey God perfectly in all things, and that included the knowledge of God's law that was written on his heart, which is another way of talking about the natural law. And that's something that the Westminster Standards bring out, is that even from the beginning— I mean, if it's true after the fall, how much more so at the beginning did Adam know God's law and was responsible for obeying it? And not just that, but that Adam must have known that if he disobeyed, and he must have known this by nature, that if he disobeyed, that he was due God's judgment. You think about the end of Romans 1, Paul talking about natural revelation. Not only do people do these things, these various sins he's recounted, but they approve of those who do them, and they know that those who do them deserve judgment. So even before the fall into sin, Adam must have known God's law by nature, and he knew by nature that he deserved God's judgment if he fell. And so, in that sense, what God revealed, his special revelation to Adam, was not telling him something brand new. He revealed to Adam, by special revelation, a law and a judgment that reflected what Adam should have known and actually did know, also by nature. Preaching is so important because it's foolish, according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God people. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. What happened to that natural knowledge of God that Adam had before the fall and the natural knowledge of God's moral expectations that he had before the fall? What what became of it after the fall? Well, it's hard to give a detailed psychological account of that because Scripture doesn't give that to us. But what Scripture does tell us is, I think, several things. 
For one thing, we know that that knowledge remains. And probably, again, the place in Scripture that just sets it out most clearly is Romans 1, which speaks of all people being without excuse, that in the things that have been created, we know God. And not only that, but Romans 1.32, that we know that those who do such things deserve to die. That's the things that we know by nature. And so that knowledge which Adam had didn't disappear. What it did, what we might say, is that sinful human beings are constantly twisting and corrupting that. And I mean, that really is the main point of Romans 1, that we are in this constant business as sinners of going our own way and rebelling against God's natural order. But I think to fully appreciate Romans 1 and Romans 2, and this is something that I say in my book, is that Romans 1 and 2 in a way makes clear what is all over the Old Testament. And I don't get to Romans 1 until pretty good ways into the book. You might think that that's sort of the centerpiece of the book, and it's really not. We have, for example, the covenant with Noah in Genesis 9, which speaks of God maintaining this world, sustaining this world as a meaningful, purposeful, orderly world in which we as human beings continue to be image bearers of God who have responsibilities to seek justice. Now, I make quite a long argument that we ought to see that as extremely relevant for developing a theology of natural law. I think it is really important. I think having a concept of natural law along the lines of what Romans 1 and 2 talks about is necessary for making sense of some of the things we see later in Genesis. How do we make sense of the fact that Abraham in Genesis 20 can have this conversation with King Abimelech, this pagan Philistine king? And Abimelech can rebuke Abraham and say, you've done to me things that ought not to be done because he gave away his wife to him. There in Genesis 20, and, and I have about, about half a chapter I devote to this account in chapter 20, it's, it's just fascinating. To, to put it in perspective, this is the confrontation of Abraham, the true believer, the one who's in this special covenant relationship with God, with Abimelech, this pagan king. And Abraham is, he's afraid, and he tells Abimelech that Sarah's his sister, and Abimelech takes him into his house, and God actually reveals to Abimelech that he has Abraham's wife, actually, and so Abimelech goes out to confront him. I mean, how fascinating. Here you have a pagan and the true believer confronting each other in this sort of this legal conflict, and what Abimelech says is, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. That's pretty striking. How did Abimelech know that? How did Abimelech know that? And Abraham replies to him, he says, well, you know, I, I didn't think there was any fear of God in this place. And actually, if you think about it, what Abraham is saying implicitly is, I was wrong. There actually is a certain fear of God here. Now, that might seem a little disturbing to readers, but you actually find a lot of examples in Genesis and also early in Exodus and other places in Scripture where the fear of God is attributed in some way to unbelievers, not in that full, rich covenantal sense by any means, but in some idea of having some sense of accountability before a divine power, some sense of justice. And Abraham could look at Gerar, the city of which Abimelech was king, and say, you know what? There's some fear of God in this place. They actually have a conception that there are certain things that you just ought not to do. Like, you don't give away your wife to someone else. And I'm convinced that without some kind of conception of natural law, it's really hard to make sense of that narrative in Genesis 20. Is this something like what we used to describe as civic righteousness? that everyone everywhere knows that there are just certain things that can't be done. And maybe in our time, it's difficult for us to understand this notion of civic righteousness because we seem to have so little in common sometimes with the rest of the culture around us. 
Yes, it is, in fact, what we often used to call civic righteousness. And I I think we see in Abimelech a great example of that civic righteousness. It is true that we often feel that we don't have much in common with our unbelieving neighbors, but do you really think Abraham felt a lot in common with Abimelech? I mean, he was scared. I mean, I might not have a lot in common with my unbelieving neighbors, but I'm not scared of my unbelieving neighbors. I mean, I don't walk out of my door in the morning scared that they're going to shoot me. But Abraham was scared for his physical safety. And we know he was dealing with a lot worse people. He had to think about the people down in Sodom. Jacob and his children had to think about the people in Shechem who did some pretty nasty things to his daughter. So the idea of civic righteousness is an important one. And the idea of natural law, along with the ideas of common grace, are important tools that we have for trying to understand how this works. But I think it's also important to remember, just so we don't give the wrong impression about my book, is that I actually spend a lot more time talking about God's judgment coming through the natural law than I talk about some of these examples of civic righteousness. And I talk about the stories of Sodom, for example. I talk about a number of judgments against foreign nations that the Old Testament prophets pronounce. It seems to me that this is this is another place where, without some conception of natural law, it's really hard to know what to do with these texts. If we take, for example, these prophetic oracles against the foreign nations, and just to be clear, what I'm talking about here is something that we find in all the major prophets, and actually in a number of the minor prophets, is that these prophets will give oracles against foreign nations. In other words, not against Israel and Judah, but against the Philistines or the Moabites or the Babylonians or other neighbors. And we find that God is holding these nations accountable for their sins. Now, how do they know their sins? How can they be held accountable for these things? If God is a just judge, he's not going to hold people accountable for what they don't know. That's just a basic principle of justice. Well, it's interesting that God never holds these nations accountable for things that you can only know through the law of Moses. He doesn't hold them responsible for not going to the temple to offer the right kinds of sacrifices. In fact, it's very interesting that he doesn't even condemn them for idolatry. What he condemns them for are what I call in my book, crimes against humanity. He condemns them for things like, in Amos 1, ripping open pregnant women for stomping on their neighbors without mercy, for war crimes, or for overweening pride and hubris. Sounds like the newspaper. Well, it does sort of sound like it, doesn't it? I mean, we do know something about civil rulers with hubris. We hear about war crimes, crimes against humanity. It's still going on in so many places in this world. And I think that in these texts, we get a little foretaste of the final judgment. God did promise to Noah after the flood. He wasn't going to destroy the whole world again with a flood. But he didn't say he wasn't going to ever bring judgment, even in this present life again. And what we see is that God does, here and now, he brings these local judgments against these foreign nations, and he holds them responsible for what they've done. Not for obscure things, but for evident sins, evident crimes that they have committed. Again, how do they know these things? How does God justly hold them responsible? Well, I think we really need a theology of natural law to be able to appreciate that and understand that. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Our Lord himself appeals to Sodom and Gomorrah as a picture of the final judgment and contrasts between the obligation or the liability that his hearers had and the liability of people in Sodom and Gomorrah. So how does the New Testament talk about these things? Right. 
you give a good example of how the New Testament picks up on that theme of Sodom, which really becomes sort of the archetypal instance of judgment that the New Testament uses to prophesy about the final judgment. But I think if we go back to Romans 1, again, it really sums up what I was just reflecting on. I think when we read the Old Testament, we think to ourselves, how can God justly hold these other nations accountable when he hasn't given them his law, at least his written law? And what that idea that we have, there must be some sort of law of nature that they know, that they're responsible for. Paul says that exactly, explicitly in Romans 1. He says that they know these things, and because they know these things, that no one has any excuse. See, that's exactly the point. When it comes to the final judgment, no one is going to be able to stand before God and say, why are you condemning me for these sins? I never had the scriptures. I never read the law of Moses. I never read the Sermon on the Mount. The fact is, is that every single person, by virtue of being a human being, living in this kind of world, knows that he has certain responsibilities before God. And so what passes like Romans 1 says quite clearly in a, in a rather systematic way I believe, is all over the Old Testament, and it really illuminates how we understand many of those events of old. As we bring this discussion to a close, let's think for a moment about what Christians can do with this pervasive and progressively revealed doctrine of the natural knowledge of God and of His basic moral expectations for all humans. How can Christians capitalize on this For example, as they think about interacting with non-Christians on a daily basis or on matters of civil righteousness or perhaps even in evangelism or witnessing. Well, I'm going to have to try to summarize briefly. It's a very big question, and we don't have time to go into this in detail. I think for one thing, it's important for Christians to remember when they're thinking—I think this pertains to evangelism or pertains just to our attempts to basically get along with our neighbors in ordinary life or in political or legal matters— is that unbelievers know God's law. They may deny it, they will deny it in various ways, but they actually know it, and that should give us a certain confidence. And I think it also, we remember that God in His common grace doesn't allow that natural knowledge of Him to go completely useless in this world, and that God is going to use the testimony of the natural law to work some good in this world, to bring some justice and order in this world. And it's a very big question about how we go about, in some way, contributing to that or trying to bring that about. But I think it's, it's a question that Christians ought to think about. So let me leave that there. With respect to evangelism, this is a really important one, because as you know very well, the gospel doesn't make any sense without the law. The gospel is the proclamation that the law is fulfilled, that our sins against the law are forgiven, that Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law for us, that God is now sanctifying us by His Spirit to obey God's law. You need to know the law in order to be able to even begin to understand the gospel. So if the gospel is to make sense in this world to which we want to bring it, we better also be bringing the law. And certainly we bring the written law of God in Scripture to bear, but God has also given us the natural law. And I think we need to bring the testimony of natural law to bear in society, not just to try to push the world in a somewhat more just and orderly, peaceful direction, but also so that the gospel will make more sense to people. So if I could just mention one other thing, this is an important point of my second to last chapter in the book, And that one of the things that the New Testament makes very clear is that we are ultimately citizens of a heavenly kingdom, that even now we are heirs of everlasting life, and we are to be conforming our lives according to the pattern of that age to come. 
And even though we are to continue to honor the natural law and to honor civil institutions that God has established in this world, we are also called to some very unique things as believers that give testimony to the fact that this world in its present form is not going to endure forever. And I think when we do church discipline the way we're supposed to, when we forgive sinners and reconcile with sinners, when we give generously, abundantly to other people, we're doing things that don't make full sense to this world. And I don't mean just to this world, to the sinful world, but don't even necessarily make sense to the natural law. The natural law doesn't say, forgive the sinner. It says, do justice to the sinner. By testifying to the continuing reality of the natural law, we also have the opportunity that as we do what we're supposed to do in the Church of Jesus Christ, to testify that there's something there's something more than this present natural order. And I think that has to be an important part of our broader theology of natural law as well. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.